Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm Jade Scott. This is Growth RX, and today we are joined all the way from Christchurch in New Zealand with the amazing Dr. Bronnie Lennox Thompson. How are you, Bronnie? I'm very good, thank you, Jade. It's wonderful to be with you. Awesome. Tell us about the background you've got behind you. It looks. <laughs> this is this is New Brighton Pier, not today, but um. It's about five minute walk from home and there's the day that I took that, it was pretty blowy, so it gets pretty stormy out there. It's our biggest, in Christchurch it's the biggest beach, it's Waimari Beach, it's massive and it's got a bitterly cold easterly, so you do not go out there thinking that it's going to be super hot like Manly or somewhere like that, it's just not the same. <laughs> that, admittedly, it doesn't look overly relaxing, but it's a, it's a nice image. Right. Now, to introduce you, gosh, I mean, you've got, you've got a, a huge CV, but you started off and you still are an occupational therapist. Sorry. You've got a PhD in pain management mm -hmm. and also a master's in psychology, but you are pretty much the head honcho, the academic coordinator at the University of Otago. I know how busy you are amongst all of these other things that you do. But um, yeah, can you tell us more about what you do as that academic coordinator? Um, so it's my responsibility to look at both the academic content and the direction really of our postgrad programs in pain and pain management. Um, and to, I guess, think about the admission process, look at the research process, um, manage lots of aspects that, that universities require. Universities are um, medieval institutions and they belie their heritage when they start to talk about bureaucracy. We invented it. So, <laughs> so that's partly my, my job is to kind of wind my way through regulations and deal with that side of it. Yeah. Now, you've got a great presentation, a mini webinar coming up for us on pain, anxiety, and pain-related fear. But before we get into that, a little bit more about you. I would love to know what book you're reading at the moment. Um, junk science fiction. And I couldn't tell you the, the title of it because I, I Kindle them. So I, and I read very fast and I read all the time. And so I just devour um, junk science fiction, cheap, free, because the rest of my reading is really academic. So I like, it's like having chewing gum. It's just like, or junk food. It's just fantastic. I love it. <laughs> An outlet for you. And yeah. what about, tell us something people wouldn't necessarily know about you or hobbies or things that you do that we, that we wouldn't know about. So lots of people will know that I have a lovely Labradoodle whose name is Miss Molly May and she is not a small dog. She is a full-sized um, Labradoodle. So she's full-sized um, poodle. So really big, big girl. But she believes that she can fit on any available lap. So just beware. And um, in my spare time, I do creative stuff. So I, I do silversmithing, um, which I took up just after I finished my PhD, because during PhD, you have no brain space for anything other than PhD. And my partner, I think, was a little bit tired <laughs> of hearing about pain. He works in the mortuary, so between us, we talk pain and death, which means we don't have very many dinner time um, invitations. 
so yeah he gave me that and i love it you have fire you have metal you hammer things and you create jewelry like um thing that i i wear so that's my that's my real out of not not in front of a computer okay and and two last questions that i ask regularly do you own a pair of crocs i do and i wear them with pride and pleasure and last for the year okay is it like are they like i'm not going to judge you is it like working on it walking on a cloud and when do you wear them um i wear them when i'm fishing I wear them when I'm walking around um, the backyard. It's not like walking on a cloud because actually I like my, um, what are those other ones? The German one. Well, they look like German ones, you know. Birkenstocks? Yes. Yes. I wear those. And I have a fashionable silver pair that I wear of Birkenstocks that I wear. I'll pay them because you're wearing them functionally. <laughs> Uh, and finally, obviously, in true Growth RX style, we love to showcase people who are doing great things in leadership and great things for allied health and healthcare all over the world. I would love to know what leadership means to you. Well, it was, I was a bit flawed when you first asked the question because I don't really think of myself as a leader. Because to me, leaders are people that stand up the front and, you know, lead but then i decided i'd do some reading so i've got one two three four five six p's so leaders have presence so you know they project something oh there's another p so they have presence they have a purpose they're aiming for somewhere and somewhere and going for somewhere um they make progress so you're moving towards something you're not just stay, staying put they're pro-social so they bring the team they don't do it by themselves they're working with members that actually facilitate so i like the idea of flipping the management thing on its head and you've got all these people that are doing the hard work and the managers leaders are underneath supporting them because i think that recognizing that makes a huge difference to the approach in the way that you foster and develop the people that you work with they've also got a perspective leaders have a sort of a bird's eye perspective over what's going on um, and not just inside their own area of expertise but just actually broader so watching for societal trends and things that are happening in the news and all of that sort of area adds contrasting views which I think is important and then the last thing they've got to have passion it might not look like enthusiasm and bounciness like I do but it is about that that um, oh another one persistence they stick with it so it drives that persistence Jeez, I never knew I could find so many P words. And that's the most thorough answer that we have had all year. So what a great way to end the year. Can you answer it in one sentence? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to cut words out of my PhD because I wrote too many words, so no. <laughs> it's very clear that you've got an attention to detail, which means now is probably a perfect time for me to segue over to you and yep. share with us what you've put together we're grateful for your time and i'm really excited to to be learning from somebody who eats sleeps and breathes pain, pain yeah pain. am i weird yeah <laughs> so i will hand to you to share your screen yeah how's that did it work that's great perfect awesome.
geez, technology gets me a little twitchy. So, so I didn't want to um, ever trivialize the whole idea of anxiety and fear and pain. And so when I look at that idea of you and pain and what it might mean as a little tiny mouse, I don't want to in any way trivialize it because it's enormous and it's important. So I just want to bracket everything I say about that. Let's start with what anxiety and fear is. And the definitions are that it's an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes. That's kind of good. Um, but I wanted to distinguish between that and having an anxiety disorder, which is where anxiety is getting in the way of what matters to you as a person. It's absolutely normal to be anxious when you're confronted with something that's new and uncertain. But if you don't believe me, just remember COVID, beginning of the year. We've got used to this, that, that we can look at um, events that occur, they overwhelm us, they momentarily, we do a bit of a freak out. Um, that's anxiety. So there are useful, there is usefulness in anxiety. It, in the context of this uncertain um, area that we're in or life that we're in or um, occasion, it, it starts to enable us to plan and take some action. And that fight, flight or freeze response has got some utility or else we probably wouldn't still be doing it. The challenges are when it starts to get in the way. So let's have a look at, um, some of you will be aware of the polyvagal theory. Um, so this is about looking at those phases for when anxiety starts to be, begins to be useful and then becomes much less useful. So normally when we just want to connect with people, we don't really want to feel anxious. There's a little twinge of, of anxiety there. If it's a new situation, if we don't know the people we're going to meet, um, if we are perhaps in a performance setting, and that is that starts to take us up into that yellow zone on this um, chart. And in that yellow zone is where we become much more alert to anything really, but very often th things that we start to scan, scan in our environment that might threaten us or might be something that could help us to protect ourselves. And that's about just have a, having a look at um, how can we um, use what's available to take us in a direction that we want to go and protect us from the harm or potential harm. When we start to get into that top end, which is where we start to freeze, play possum if you like, that's when things are beginning to become overwhelming. And that's when anxiety and fear are far less useful. And so when we're trying, and we're, when we're in that um, sort of freeze part, we're in the, I can't deal with this, I'm over this, the demoralized zone. So when we're thinking about people who are experiencing pain, um, very often that initial fight or flight response is about galvanizing the person into taking some action. Maybe it's seeking some help, maybe it's finding meaning, um, what is this thing I've got? 
when it starts to either go on for longer or it's much more severe or it's really not we're not sure what's going on that uncertainty part that can lead to that point of i'm just over this i'm overwhelmed we can call that demoralization if we like where i just don't and that's all and all we're worried about at that point is this moment of being able to exist so we look at things like how can i sleep um what am i eating and how can i keep myself safe and so that might be one way for us to look at the impact of pain and anxiety and how they interact um, with one another but we might also want to find something simpler simpler way of looking at it and I, one of my favorite ways of looking at what is anxiety is a perception that the threat that i'm facing the situation that i'm in is greater than my resources that i can that i have to deal with it or i perceive that it's greater than the resources i think i have so we can do two things there we can either reduce the threat value of what it is that we're facing or we can boost our resources so that we can boost our capability to feel okay about being in this context so um, on the right hand side is this threat response cycle which is kind of a process that people go through it's, again it's related to this polyvagal theory where when we're feeling in that settled phase and feeling like we are um, not under threat then we can start to explore have a look at maybe look at directions and where we want to go when we get stuck into this fight flight freeze response we start to look for ways to reduce our threat and if we don't get out of that that stuck phase then we get stuck into this i am always looking for ways to protect myself and I think for many of the people that we see with persistent pain can get stuck in that defensive orientation. It's hard for them to feel safe in their own body when it doesn't feel like their body anymore. It's hard to feel comfortable and secure and okay to explore new things if the expectations that you hold of your body have been thrown out the window. So, I think very often when we're working with people who have pain, they're in this, I'm in this flight, fight, flight or fight part, or I'm in the frozen part. And what we hope to do is try to bring them down a notch or two so they can start to explore. But we might need to bear that in mind when we're looking at the challenge level of the sorts of things that we do. So why do we get worried about pain? Well, first of all, it's not every pain. I think that's an important um, point. And what pains particularly worry us, and they seem to be things that we either know a lot about from hearing, hearing about them, where the outcome has been bad. For example, low back pain. We get far less bothered by um, a paper cut. So we don't get worried about the paper cut because we have had it before probably, even though the pain can be quite intense. Generally it resolves, whereas lots of people have back pain and lots of people don't find that it resolves quickly. So that can be one reason that we might feel quite concerned about it or anxious. Also, if we don't know 
what it is, or if we're imagining that it's something else, via, um, for example, the pain intensity is not quite as problematic as the, oh, what does it mean? So maybe this could be the cancer coming back. Maybe I've got a fracture. Maybe I'm going to need something awful. So there are things that we do look for, for the threat value. The intensity certainly does play a part. If it's a very intense pain, even if it's not a terribly severe problem from a biomedical perspective, the intensity alerts us and makes us gets us into this fight or flight response. The quality of that pain will make us feel, we're likely to feel more worried about. So visceral pain, um, pelvic pains, for example, endometriosis, um, irritable bowel, those sorts of things, they've got a nauseating quality to them and that can make us feel more worried as well. It brings on this boo, disgust kind of feeling. The duration certainly has an impact on our anxiety level. So if we have pain, we usually anticipate that it's going to resolve within a certain time frame and we'll base that on our past experiences and the people around us. But if it violates that expectation, then it starts to increase our anxiety. And the recognisability of that pain, if we can recognise this, if it looks like something else that we've had or something that somebody else has, that's going to influence the degree of concern or worry or fear that the pain might represent. So those are important um, areas to consider when we're thinking about anxiety, fear, catastrophizing is another term, and pain. We also need to remember that it's not every person. So some people are not as prone to feeling worried about things. Um, we call it anxiety sensitivity, the tendency to notice and be aware of this sort of experience of anxiety and worry or to respond to uncertainty. Some people roll with, the, with what happens much more readily than others. Some of that could be about um, our genetics. Much of it is probably about what we've seen and heard from family right the way through to what we see and read on social media. Um, and it's not also in every situation. Sometimes we can be anxious in one setting or fearful in one setting and not in another. And particularly when we're looking at movement-related um, fear, so pain-related movements, we might feel okay doing something in the safety zone of a clinic with a good therapist handy, but we might feel far more anxious and worried when we're out in daily life without the um, certainty of safety, without with the unpredictability of our environmental contexts. So worry about pain and anxiety about pain is certainly a thing. Let's have a look at the difference between anxiety and fear, because they are different. So fear is an immediate alarm reaction to a threat that is happening in the here and now. And it's about trying to escape it. And usually we get this whoosh of um, sympathetic arousal. Anxiety, on the other hand, is this future-oriented emotion. This might happen. 
this could be likely to happen. I expect that it will happen, but it hasn't happened or isn't happening right in this moment. And what it does is it tunes our emotions to a more negative bent. It starts to increase our vigilance, so we're scanning what's around us. And it also increases our somatic tension, so we do increase what our body is ready to do, think, fight, or flight. Fear mobilizes us, thinking humans here, to take action, whereas anxiety often just leads us to stopping and watching, that watching, waiting, worrying. So if we go to the literature, pain-related disability is associated with fear of pain. And we're really worried about disability when it comes to dealing with, um, with pain. Pain on its own is less of a problem. It becomes a problem when it starts to get in the way of doing what people want to and need to do. Fear of pain is probably caused by this tendency to freak out. I don't use the term catastrophizing as much as um, some people do. I prefer to say you're freaking out. You're thinking the worst. You're brooding on this problem. And that is completely understandable. Again, roll your minds back to the beginning of COVID. And we were really quite freaked out. And some of us still are. And some of us dealing with COVID are getting to that point where we're actually really in the frozen state. We've run out of puff. We're over it. So that tendency to think the worst or catastrophize is something that people do. And we're all prone to it from time to time. So never ever label the person that you're working with as, oh, you're a catastrophizer. Because we can all do this. Let's be human about this. For this person with their pain, they've never had this before, or they did have it before and it didn't work out so well. So no wonder they're doing a bit of a freak out. I'll stop that little soapbox right now. Um, the tendency to think the worst is associated with this general tendency towards anxiety sensitivity, so tending to notice our um, emotional responses and our arousal level. Fear of pain is also associated with higher pain intensity. And that could be just an association or it could be a causal relationship. The more fearful you are of pain, the higher you rate that pain and probably a whole lot of the neurobiological processing increases the amount of information coming from the periphery and registering in a whole bunch of areas in the brain to alert us. And that makes perfect sense. It helps us deal with this or not as time goes on. Fear calls us, us to defend, so we start to selectively attend to this potential threat, gets us ready for action, and gets us to start looking for ways to escape or avoid. And the things that we see, the people that we watch, the kinds of information that we're given, when we are sore, will tend to increase these tendencies. So when we tell somebody, oh, what you need to do for your back pain is this particular type of movement, because it will help, we're in effect 
increasing the tendency to use that as an escape or avoidance strategy. So we need to be quite careful about how we advise people around um, what they do when they're sore, especially if that person is feeling fearful or anxious. And this escape and avoidance strategy, which is really common and really normal in acute phases, because it's probably going to help us rest and recuperate or avoid that, um, that painful thing, becomes less useful over time. And the, that response becomes strengthened. And the learning um, process that, that, is, that we draw on as humans, both as the social um, observation, so people will support us when they say, oh, don't lift that, that's heavy. You might hurt yourself, or you've got a sore back, so you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and it's also through not doing that thing, we avoid disconfirming at the theory that we hold in our heads or the hypothesis that if I do it, it's going to hurt. So it becomes negatively reinforcing. So avoiding doing that thing that might hurt means that we, we maintain this belief in, oh, it could hurt. And it stays and it hangs around and it can start to generalise and go beyond this one instance and throw into much bigger, bigger areas. So that is really the underpinnings for the fear avoidance model, those of you that hadn't spotted that already. Now, there are lots and lots of pieces of um, sort of assessment tools that we can use to look at fear of pain and anxiety and, and pain. Um, but each measure can tap into something slightly differently different. These ones that I've listed on the presentation here are very common and the reference um, for this is on the last page of this um, presentation. We can always post that for you. So while all of these measures are useful, there are some fish hooks in, in them in that, um, for example, the Tampa scale has two dimensions. One is about um, fear of re-injury and harm and the other dimension is about um, I'm going to avoid this. Now if somebody's been given really good information and so they know that they are not damaging themselves when they move but they still fear what it feels like to hurt and they don't want to do that, they can look superficially as if they don't have a high score on the TSK. And so our treatment might not take that into account. But when we start to dig in to have a look at those subscales, we can see that the avoidance component, the not doing part, which is most influential in the disability part, um, that's the bit that is probably high. And simply telling somebody you're safe is probably not going to work. Don't believe me, just try standing next door to a really big, hairy spider that's going to come and grab you and somebody will tell you oh you're fine you're fine if you're a spider phobic you will probably slap them and you probably deserve to be slapped if that's what you're saying it's not by being told that phobias or avoidance strategies are overcome it's actually through the doing um some more details younger people probably tend to think the worst more than older people. And that might be 
partly about increased interoceptive awareness. It's also partly about the learning processes as we, as we mature, let's not call it age. As we mature, we become more aware that we can encounter these events and successfully work through them. Older people might have less fear of pain, but that might be a bit of an artifact of the fact that they've got other health conditions that could be more fear-provoking than whatever's painful. Um, it might be that, that actually they're more concerned about the potential for a stroke or for heart disease or something than, ouch, my sore back. So that could be an artifact. However, that's, that's what we find. We know that anticipated pain is actually more anxiety provoking than pain in the moment. So if you are waiting for that thing to happen, it's far more anxiety provoking than when it's actually happening. And we also know that low back pain provokes more fear than any other pain in any other part of the body, which is fascinating. And a question to ask ourselves as to how and why that's arisen. Because yes, low back pain is the most disabling problem, but at the same time, it's the one that probably doesn't have um, significance in terms of death. So it just gets in the way. And so we probably need to think a little bit about the language that we use when we're talking about um, low back pain. We also know that first time events of pain probably play a really important role in how anxious and fearful people become. Um, because every subsequent painful episode they go through is gonna have something to do with their recall of that first event. So that probably means that when we first see somebody with their first bout of low back pain, headache pain, period pain, that what we say and how we manage this is going to be super important. And finally, the, the point is that fear of pain and all that avoidance is really context dependent. So we can find that people are ready and willing to take their shoes and socks off um, at home. But when they've got to lift a box where they're using the same position, it might not be that the box is any heavier, it's that they are bending and lifting, even though the movements are the same. It might be about the, the location. It could be about the other people around them. It could be about um, the fatigue that they're having. There are so many other contextual factors that really influence how much we avoid. And that's important to think about in treatment. Pain is a motivational state. Um, some would argue this, but I think that it helps to motivate us to do something. First of all, it motivates us to take, pay attention. And then it motivates us to defend and avoid and respond to this experience. And so this is a really nice, um, again, description, picture of the fear avoidance model and showing that it, we try to um, prioritise in different contexts, either the goal that we're aiming for or our pain. So it's quite common for somebody to be okay with being sore and doing something that matters to them, riding a motorbike, going fishing, um, surfing, or 
they might prioritise pain and avoiding pain. And we, we find that the most um, the problematic issues with, with fear avoidance and this anxiety and pain is when people prioritise pain reduction over what matters in their whole life. As they watch people seek um, treatment after treatment after treatment, waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen, and then they're not able to um, engage in being a good partner, being able to stay um, friends with their mates, to do the things that they really enjoy. So what should we do about it? Well, sometimes information is enough. Mostly it's not, um, but sometimes that's all somebody needs. Learning to stay with the experience seems to be a really important part. Avoiding the experience does not help. So sitting with and being present with pain um, and anxiety about pain is a really important part of our treatment. And probably a lot of what we do in exercise-based approaches is helping people become familiar with doing movements and not moving away from them. So engaging in things that will just elevate that anxiety level a little bit. Approaching and disconfirming that expectation that this is going to be a problem doesn't eliminate, doesn't unlearn those pathways. It reroutes or it takes, we start to develop divergent neurological pathways. So that enables us to perhaps approach doing something with a different um, feel to it. And expectation violation. So believing this is going to hurt and then finding out that it didn't hurt as much as I thought is more effective than fear reduction. All my fear is dropping. But that's an experimental pain. And real pain, clinical pain, is a little bit different. So just hold that one as a, as a possible thought. Finally, engaging in what really matters helps to alter the relationship between what's experienced and the pain, even in the presence of ongoing pain. People routinely do things that hurt because it matters to them. Don't believe me? Weightlifters, long-distance runners, um, people who go and have surgery for a joint replacement will go through, oh, childbirth. Oh, I shouldn't say that one. <laughs> Um, but all of these things are things that hurt and people do them anyway because it's worth it. And so I think we need to remember that when we're thinking about pain, that it's not the pain intensity itself, it's the meaning, it's the relationship between what we're doing and values that matters. So finally, practical steps. Find out what matters to this person and why it matters. What is the activity that they particularly want to be able to do? And why is that important? Where and when does this activity matter? Then start that, developing that capability to return to the here and now. Remember that anxiety is about anticipating the future. Fear is what's going on in the here and now. So if we can help people remember not to anticipate what might go wrong and not to recall what might have gone wrong in the past, but to be present to what is, can anchor people to what is and then making room to be present with that allows them to begin to do things again. Ensure that anything that you do with a person is inherent, inherently valuable to them. So they must be 100% willing. This means no gritting your teeth and bearing it. 
um, because that teaches endurance and it teaches gritting your teeth and bearing it, but it doesn't bring that flourishing, that um, intrinsic enjoyment that seems to increase and enhance our capability for being okay with this discomfort. So consider how you go about generating the sorts of things that you can help somebody do. Grade the challenge. So you might want to create a hierarchy of things that the person wants to be able to do and start with the things that they are just a teeny bit concerned about. Start there. Don't start with that hierarchy too high because they will run away and they will hate you and probably you deserve it. Um, in vivo, um, so this is in, in living contexts, um, when somebody's doing a movement that they're apprehensive of, ask them what shows up. And this could be thoughts, this could be images, sliding over, landing flat on your backside, emotions, feelings, body sensations, changes in heart rate and breathing. Ask the person to really slow down. Slow down and notice what's happening rather than jumping in and trying to get the, the movement done um, you know, in super quick time. Ask them, can you make room for this sense of unease, this queasy feeling in your stomach, this vision that you have of yourself slipping and landing on your ass? <laughs> um, and do this activity. Tap into values. Why is this such an important thing for you to do? What is it about this that matters? Because that helps us to stick in there and keep doing stuff. Maybe say, what advice would you give somebody else who is doing this movement? Look to past experiences where the person has tried something and they've done it, because that's how we learn. And look to towards moves, little shifts that are taking the person in the direction of doing this thing that matters to them using those values. Those little shifts and small steps that can go on every day, little tiny moments of noticing and choosing to do in the presence of this wee quiver of anxiety. And finally, generalize outside the clinic. The clinic is not where people live. So this can look like getting the person to looking at walking over different surfaces, getting them to take their phone and getting them to have a go at taking photos of where they've been. Um, you might want to use things like geocaching or um, those online games where you carry your phone around and you go to places and take photos. All those sorts of activities that help the person to generalise their newly found confidence. But don't pitch the anxiety or fear level up too much, too quickly. Build resilience. Get the person to have lots of um, variations in how they do the stuff, how they do it. Perfect form does not matter. Help them consider lots of different ways that they might be able to approach doing this thing that matters to them. Make sure they've got these foundation skills of being fully present, noticing, and being able to come back to that over and over and over again. It's mindfulness, if you like.
don't generate new rules that tell, telling them they've got to do something in one way or why you did that so well. Um, ask the person instead to notice and discover for themselves and help them develop habits so that these become overlearned practices that they can draw on at any time. Um, and help them to step back from that learning process so they can notice that they do have options. And notice these processes in yourself. You might need to think about how you go about um, encouraging people to do different movements in the presence of that bit of concern that you might have. Am I doing harm? These are the list of references, so we can put them up on um, the resources. Um, and that's it from me for now. Thank you so much, Bronnie. I, I, if you could see my, look at all my notes. I usually write concisely and have some clear questions, but most of my questions you sort of really answered and articulated really eloquently as we went through. For me, the breakdown, the practical steps, and then the ways to kind of think differently and have a different perspective on pain I think is so important because it's so subjective. It's all entirely subjective. That's what pain is. It's my feeling of my body, your feeling of your body, and we've got no idea, just like the taste of apple. We don't know that the way we taste an apple is the same, and same with our pain. We've got no idea. So we have to use these methods like language to try and capture that, and it just does not do justice. And don't get me started on the numeric rating scale. Just don't get me started on that. And, and I just think it's really important as well. When I went back and when I was studying and went through my course 20 years ago, <laughs> there wasn't much talk of pain. And I know that I've been practicing for 20 years and I know the importance of pain. And it's, it's very front of mind for a lot of people at the moment. But a lot of us as practitioners, we deal with it every hour every half an hour in every single patient most people are coming in to see us for an increase in movement reduction in pain but above that a better and improved quality of life they come to us to help them and pain certainly falls into that category mm. i know and i can speak for many others we don't have a psychology degree we haven't a lot of people haven't done postgraduate training in pain management and yet it's what we deal with every single day. Absolutely. Being so ingrained in this and so passionate about this, does this worry you in an allied health space where practice, and, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but, you know, uh, you know, is this something that we need to really consider doing? Is And, and not a lot of people are... are interested in chronic pain and dealing with pain. And I certainly think that the way you broke it down with fear and anxiety and tying it back to what the people want and the goal orientated notion of it. But again, we're not psychologists. And in one of the conversations earlier this year, I had with Rachel Zoffness mm. as a psychologist, I said to her, do we have a place here? And her perspective was yes, absolutely. As long as you're not trying to be a psychologist. And I think for you, as long as, long as we're not trying to be an OT, we can get kind of people back moving. Where where are your fears surrounding this and do we need to do more and be better in this space? I think um, our undergraduate training across all health professions is pretty crap when it comes to pain. Let's be really frank. And that's um, from medical training 
you know, the old um, statement that veterinarians get more hours training in pain than our medical practitioners do. And that is pretty awful, really. Um, and so, and what we often get taught is the neurobiology. So we know about nociceptors and we know these bits of the brain that get involved. We forget that if we're talking pain, we're talking what it feels like and how it matters to this person. And so we need to be much more aware of how pain influences somebody. It's disconcerting. It makes people, it is an emotional experience as well as a sensory experience. And as health professionals, we're constantly, particularly allied health, we're constantly working with people who are encountering health challenges. And, and for us not to know about emotions, about how people learn stuff, how um, people think about things, suggests that we are starting to think we're treating an elbow and not a person. And so I think that, that the... Um, biopsychosocial model, for want of a better descriptive term, is fundamental to how we should look at humans across the board. So two things would be really important to me is, no, we're not treating psychopathology. Most people with pain, um, acute pain in particular, don't, they're not depressed, they're demoralised and fed up, um, they're frightened. And that's normal. And that's not psychopathological. Those who've got um, an underlying vulnerability to mood, to anxiety disorders, to other forms of psychopathology, they will probably, in some ways, manage better because they've already got some skills and they're already aware, especially if they've had treatment before from a psychologist or an OT. However, when we're talking pain, we are not generally talking about people who do have psychopathology. They're just normal people who are trucking along, having an everyday life, and suddenly this thing happened to them, or gradually this thing happened to them, and it's freaking them out. So let's be humans. Let's treat this person as we would want to be treated ourselves, as compassionate, as um, willing to listen, to validate that experience, to be a witness to, to sit beside, because that's actually what people are asking for. They're not asking for us to go and delve into their, you know, tragedies of their life. They will ask for that and, or not, and we can offer that to them. But when we're working with pain, psychology has a real role, but so do all the other allied health. In fact, we probably need to know more as allied health because Often somebody won't go to see a psychologist until somebody else has said, hey, I can see you're really struggling with this. How would it be if we got some help for you? So maybe that's the way we can frame the use of psychological approaches. Oh, I've got a molly. Ha, my dog's just joining me. Um, maybe we can think about the use of psychologists as reserving psychological input for those, those people who are really stuck, who are really struggling. By and large, it's our everyday Joe Bloggs who's, um, you know, fractured something or strained or sprained something who just needs a bit more confidence and a bit of encouragement to have a go and to not feel quite so worried about it. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a lot of credit I have to give in allied health. You know, there are certainly practitioners who don't have their head in the sand. 
Mm. We, we know how important this is. We, there is a, an embracing of pain science. And I do think that practitioners have always humanised pain. I, I do. I think that we have these brilliant soft skills in the treatment room that allow us to build trust and connect with people, which is why people, you know, find us reputable authorities or, or credible people in this space. And I think even when in the course I run Good to Great in Private Practice, one of the things we talk about is empathy, but also finding the emotional event that somebody is not defined by their pain, but more so what they want to get back to, what they're going to gain by having that pain go away and then focusing and continuously coming back to that, which makes people feel heard. And I think that's one of the, the big things I've got here in bold is finding out what matters because exactly as you said, people, not everyone worries about pain and people usually resist what's not in their best interest. And sometimes childbirth, as you said, if you want this beautiful gain at the end, we will as humans find this beautiful innate capability and we run off adrenaline. And it's really interesting when it comes to empathy is that often a lot of people say you can't empathize, you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes unless you've felt the same 10 out of 10 pain. But even when, so. I went through, you know, when, when, when I had my brain surgery, I didn't realize that they didn't give me medication. I think I was climbing up walls in pain, but you run off adrenaline often as well. So there's so many things that I guess comes to mind. And I think this is where, and you said repeatedly, education and information is really important when to create that reinforcement make sure it's it's not promoting negative reinforcement and then that fear versus anxiety i think for me that was a really great take home mm-hmm. is to be able to distinguish between the two and where that person lies so i think we've we've made great developments i think in this in the pain space and people certainly understand the importance of it and drawing it back to their life goals and baby steps so and i guess you learn that through professional and practitioner maturity how do you find or what do you say i guess to to probably new graduates that come out who often probably there's there's a lot of people that are kind of going down that postgraduate stuff but realistically if you understand pain and that noisyceptive side of it that we, we hear about, normalising pain and just humanising it, um, what would you say to new graduates who I guess are, are worried about dealing with biopsychosocial patterns? I think we've turned it into a really big, scary thing. Oh, it's really, really complex. And it is, for especially for people whose pain's gone on for a long time. But actually, most pain conditions aren't uh, short-term we've got to remember most people don't develop long-term pain that's good to remember and so in that moment it's again coming back to if I was if I was sitting there what would I like what would matter to me all of our training in allied health involves people who are encountering changes in their life challenge in their life and that is going to be anxiety provoking so we are used to that we perhaps feel um, that pain is different and weird um, and I think perhaps we can demystify that by remembering even as new graduates that we are stepping into something that um, 
we can we can normalize it. We can remember this is a person going through changes. And hey, as a new graduate, I'm going through changes. I'm probably also feeling a bit anxious. And that's normal. So is this person. So we just bring it back to more common levels. We also remember that the reasons that people seek help for their pain is often not because of the pain intensity. It's because it's getting in the way of something. We look at meta-analyses of treatment seeking. It's because, oh, I've had this pain niggling away for a little while and now I want to go and do some tramping or, sorry, hiking for those that don't know what tramping is. Or now I want to go back to work or I'm doing this thing and this pain's getting in the way. Most of the time people are seeking help in this moment because their pain is interfering. And if we remember that um, and ask, if pain was not such of a problem for you, what would you be doing? What would make your life a lot more like your life? Then we might tap into some of those intrinsic motivations. And that helps us to reduce the anxiety, reduce the threat. Getting someone to do kind of weird um, movements or to think of their pain as something quite unique and scary and sometimes I think our pain education can err on that side actually might work against us and increase the, the threat value of that experience. Yeah and you know when it comes down to the implications that that pain has on their life oh, yeah. independence and self-care at the basic level is one of our seven human fundamental needs. So if we're getting pain that at some point is interfering or threatening that, which is kind of when you talked about that interpretation, perception, threat concept, people are going to get anxiety because they think, well, I'm not going to be able to do this or I'm not going to be able to do that. It's going to interfere with my life. And I guess the notion of fearing the unknown and the uncertainty starts yeah. to step in. But at what point, and it's come up in some discussions, Nick Pappas, Daniel Abila, there's some sort of groups out there that we're talking about, is it okay for a practitioner to, and, and is it, it's, you know, I, I kind of felt a bit uncomfortable with our, within our scope of practice. When do you talk to people about saying it's okay to live with pain? Is there always something we can do? You know, at what point do people have to just go, okay, there's nothing I can do to make this get better. There's no more treatment. I'm dependent on treatment. At what point do I just need to live with this and look to self-motivate and self-manage? I think self-management begins day one, actually. Um, pain will do what it does. And that's really what we're doing when none of us, unless we're working surgically perhaps or um, sticking needles into, you know, with substances into people or administering medications, none of us are directly working with pain. We're, mo we're moving tissues. We're getting bodies to do stuff. We're getting people to think differently. We're not directly addressing pain. So in many respects, um, and I know I work with a persistent pain population, so they're four to many years down the track. Um, if I don't ask about pain, I won't reinforce that person constantly reviewing what their pain is doing. I would rather hear, what have you been doing? What's been happening in your life this last week? Let's look at that, because that starts to stay, take the focus away from the presence or absence of pain and much more onto why am I here anyway, and that's so I can do more. 
I think we tend to emphasize the pain because that matters to us and people verbalize it's the pain. But when we look behind that, it's not, the relationship between pain intensity and disability is not straightforward at all. Pain and tissue changes, not straightforward at all. And so if we tend to focus on the pain intensity as the end point, we're going to forget that that's a very variable and malleable experience. Pain reporting, pain intensity reporting varies day to day, um, depending on how much attention you're paying to it, depending on how much fear you've got at the moment, how tired you are, whether you have been talking to somebody who, who had a bad experience, whether you're remembering things, all of these factors, you know, if we're feeling down, our pain's gonna feel worse. So a pain intensity measure is not a pure measure. So I think we start the self-management early. I think everything that somebody does when they're not with us is self-management because that's what we're asking them to do. Talking about when to discuss the potential for learning to live with pain, I kind of, I think we need to start earlier than we do, and I know that we don't have enough information about how to broach the subject or how to advise somebody even that your pain's hanging around. Maybe we can instead think about um, if it's hanging around and in the presence of that, what can we do to make your life feel more like yours anyway? Um, because it's in pursuing and doing things that matter that people's lives get bigger and the pain gets proportionately smaller. So the more we enlarge somebody's life, the less impact that pain has on who they are. And if I think about what pain represents, it's often paired with that word suffering. Suffering is about the loss of sense of who I am, what I can expect from myself. And so if we can enlarge who we are, and think about the way I can regain the things that matter to me, that make me feel like me, then the pain itself becomes less important, pervasive, much, much easier to handle. That's that relationship with pain. And I guess that's where I think we perhaps have had our focus on, oh, we've got to take the pain away, like it's something we can take away. We can't we influence what's going on and the person experiences changes. It's different. Yeah. Look, and, and I'm one of the first ones to put my hand up. I, I'm a manual therapist. I'm trained yeah. in osteopathy. And whilst I totally appreciate the notion that I can't take pain away, I have seen clear benefits to management. Yeah. When, it's not, when it's not unethical and when it's not practitioner-driven and you do have people... I've got patients that have come to see me for regular care over a 10-year period. They're very educated. They're very equipped. But often, you know, for example, you know, Mr. Smith, the concreter, it helps him do what he does. Now, I certainly provide exercises and those sorts of things and say, look, if you, if you did this and let's get you and build up some strength and all the rest of it. But this is him who's got a, a big wallet who also says, I want to spend my money how I want. If I come and see you every month, you help me continue to run my own business, work 14 hour days. Yeah. That's what I want to do. So I guess it comes down to education, patient choice and being ethical with the way that you yeah. 
deliver this sort of stuff? Absolutely up to the person. And I think one of the things that we can do is help people evaluate the good and the not so good in both the short term and the long term of any intervention. And that goes from medications through to surgery to hands-on. For the person that um, likes touch, enjoys it, finds it helps them, put, that is worth it to them. And I, I've gone a long way from the olden days when I, all passive therapy is terribly bad. Because when I did my PhD, the people I was talking to who self-identified as living well did some stuff that we would have thought of was completely wrong, like passive therapies. Yeah. And we know that people like touch and lots of people are touch starved. So what's wrong with that? The narrative, how we explain it as clinicians and helping that person to stand back from and weigh up the good and the not so good in the short and the long term, that puts them as the drivers of this approach. And that's self-management. It's yeah. about choosing to be the owner of what I do about my pain. Yeah. That's and a good thing. In that patient choice yeah. is an example of self-management. As, as, as long as the, you know, the, the support is there and the guidance is there and it's not driven in an unethical way, and I think I just say that, and I'm very aware of my own bias here, but I think that manual therapy is, has received a lot of criticism of late for dependency care. But I, I do think that we hold a lot of value. And I think when it comes down to patients choosing, it's, it's a great way of framing it, I guess, still as, as self-care, which I think is an important message for a lot of young manual therapists. Coming yeah. I think that the way that I frame it, and I have a patient who sees somebody quite regularly for hands-on care, um, is that if this therapist wasn't available, what would you do? How would you manage? So that's that short-term and long-term impact and the good and the not so good. So how else would you manage? If this person went off on holiday, if you couldn't travel to see this person, what would you do? Have you got options? And I think there's this idea that um, that it is bad to to depend but it's also not great to feel like you've got no choices and you're being told to exclude something that helps it is not our life this is the life of the person it's our narrative that matters and if we're encouraging this person to make a thoughtful choice about what they want how they want to manage so they know they've got options if that person's not available or if life circumstances change that they can't afford it or whatever, then that is actually their choice. It's not mine. Um, that's hard to remember sometimes for us, especially evidence-based people say, oh, must not do. But it might be considered low-value care to some, but for that person maybe that's what they want and maybe that's the thing that they choose to have as long as they know there are other things out there why not yeah that's great look it's a it's a lovely way to finish and i think it's partly why i try and encourage so many people to embrace leadership because even if you're leading one person in the treatment room you're influencing them you're empowering them to act you're motivating them to create a meaningful change and that's that's proactive care and that's what we do we we advise we consult we listen and we care so 
Thank you so much, Bronnie. It's been wonderful talking all things pain, pain management, fear and anxiety with you. I could talk to you all afternoon. So yeah. grateful for your time and your experience in this space. And it's, it's been wonderful. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jade. And to all those people that are out there, do, you know, hammer out questions. I'm really happy to respond. Thanks, Bronnie. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everyone.